is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So this morning, uh, this is the third series. By the way, my name is Micah Beachy. If you're visiting here and you don't know who I am, and I'm going to be sharing with you this morning in Jimmy's stead. Um, This is the third message in the series that Jimmy um, has been preaching, the coming of Christmas. The The first message was that Jesus, the Messiah, came in the right timing. It was the right time in history for multiple reasons. But we know it because the scripture says that he came in the fullness of time. Uh, The second was he came with the right message. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the third message is he came with the right method. So Mark, do you have the, uh, there it is. I made sure they put a clock up there so I knew how long I had here. It's Christmas, but there's only so much joy to go around, right? So, so we're going to be talking about the virgin birth today, and we're going to be kind of delving into that. And if you want to turn to it, we're going to be, uh, Monk, we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 2. So we're going to read it anyway, one way or another. I, I thought in a, uh, I, I brought two Bibles with me, and I like to read from the King James because I grew up with it. But somebody has done something to my Bible. Uh, I go to sleep at night, and the next day when I get up, they're shrinking it slowly. And the words that used to be very easy for me to read, are, they're getting smaller, and it's really hard for me to see them anymore. And someday I'm going to be cool like Monk, and I'm going to have a pair of glasses that I snap on and off my nose so that I can read. But in the meantime, I just got to have my Bible with the bigger text in it. So I'm reading from the CSB this morning. Um, So if you have that, you can follow along, but read in whatever passage, in whatever uh, Bible you have. I want to start... Um, before I get into the message, I want to start with, with a, uh, a sort of just a bit of an introduction. So the virgin birth is, is a doctrine that the evangelical church holds dear. It's one of, the, one of the core doctrines for the evangelical church. It's critical. Um, from my perspective, it is a critical doctrine because it holds, it's, it's Karl Barth said, a German theologian said, it is the gatekeeper to hold the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the deity of Christ. And I agree with him 100%. We take the virgin birth, we, we, we go along with liberal theologians and get rid of the virgin birth and the concept of Mary um, having a baby with the Father, um, the God of heaven being the Father. If you take that out of it, you very quickly lose the deity of Christ. So we're going to be speaking from that perspective. The second, the second thing I want to um, just point out before we get started is, and this is something that's brand new to me this year. I don't know how I missed it all these years. But the Gospel of Matthew seems to be uh, Joseph's accounting of the birth of Christ. And the Gospel of Luke has the Mary's version of the, of the uh, birth of Christ. And so if you read it, when I, when I was in my studying, I, I ran across this, and I went back and I read both passages, and I thought, how have I been reading it all these years and never registered with me? Because when you read in the Gospel of Matthew, you read Joseph's angelic visits, you read Joseph's thoughts, you read his take on it. When you read Luke, you read about the visits of the angel to to Mary, and you read her thoughts and the inside of her head part of the story. 
So we're going to be reading it today from the Gospel of Matthew, and it's going to be from Joseph's perspective. Now, um, I like to teach truth. I like to know what it is that I'm teaching and to know that this is what I believe, and it's what I know that the Scripture teaches. And I'm not going to be teaching falsehood this morning, don't get me wrong, but I want to, I want to speak from a slightly different angle this morning, and here's why. It's very easy for us, at least it is for me, maybe it's not for you, but for me, I have heard the story of the birth of Christ for so long that my ears have kind of filled with wax and it's become a little numb to me. It's not that it's not a great story, it's just that I know it so well. There was a book when I was four years old that I had memorized, I thought I could read it, and my mom has a recording of it somewhere and I'm reading this book. But really, I've just memorized the words, and I'm just saying them as the pages turn. And that's oftentimes what happens with us when we grow up in the church and we hear these stories over and over. But this story is amazing. And Michael, thank you for that last song, because really and truly, that's why we're here this morning. Someone this morning, a very dear friend of mine, I will not name her, said, don't you go preaching at me today. Joking. But the truth is, I'm not going to be preaching at anyone today. I'm not going to even be talking that direction. We're going to be looking at the glory of God and praising Him today. That's what this is all about. We're going to be looking at what He's done. So, that being said, um, I want to do a little more conjecture and imagination and hopefully take some of the wax out of our ears, hopefully stir our imagination a little bit and be able to see truths that maybe from a fresh perspective that we haven't seen in a while before. So we're going to start reading, but before we read, let's pray together. Father God, <clears throat> I ask that the words that, that the words and the thoughts that you put in my heart for this message would come out with the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that this morning, um, as your word, which is alive and has been living for a long time and will live when I'm gone, that that word would be what penetrates the hearts of the, of the brothers and sisters here. And if there's someone here, as David prayed, that has never heard or has never understood and maybe for the first time recognizes their own sinfulness, that this would be your word going into their heart. I pray that what I say would not interfere. I pray that if I say something wrong, that it would be made known and that it would not be a detriment to anyone. But I ask, Lord, that you would be here in a powerful way. Holy Spirit, I pray that in the same way, that you were able to come to a little Jewish girl and you were able to bring forth something that had never happened before. I pray that in our hearts today, sometimes callous, sometimes tired, sometimes full of joy, that our hearts would be renewed with your presence and would be renewed with the truth that comes from your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 1. I wanted to read the whole passage, but I'm not going to. I wanted to read through the genealogies. I grew up hating the genealogies. You know, I had that through the Bible reading plan, and there was passages in the Scripture. I'm like, God, why did you? Why don't you tell us a little more about creation, a little less about who begat who through this whole thing? I found now that it's interesting because you can cross-reference it, and you can find information about people. My dad, a year or two ago, texted me, and he said, I found another Micah in the Bible. And my dad's been reading the Bible for a long time. I said, where, where is he? And so he showed me in, in, in one of the passages in these things where he found another Micah in the Bible. We're going to start in verse 12. So we're going to kind of jump into the genealogies. and We're going to continue on from there and we're going to read through the end of chapter one um, at the beginning here. So 
So here we go. Then after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiad. Abiad fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations, setting the stage for what is to come. Now, we'll go back and we'll talk about it, but I don't know if you notice as we're reading through the cadence of this man fathered this man, this man fathered this man, until he gets to Joseph, and suddenly it's broken, and Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, who had the child, It's a totally different perspective right there. So we'll get back to that. Uh, Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So there's some points, there's some references in there, there's some uh, little nuances that we want to look at. Um, and I, but I want to back up just a little bit and say, by the way, Bell Choir, thank you so much. My boys come every week, and so I know the sacrifice, and it was absolutely gorgeous, and I could have sat and listened. It was just the piece of... The season was in that. So thank you guys. All right, point one, the virgin birth was unexpected. Now, the virgin birth to us is sort of a, if you grew up in an evangelical church, it's just sort of not even thought about. Of course, Christ came. He was born of a virgin. It's just how it was. We read the creeds. We know the, the, the statements. We know what we believe, but we actually don't go back and look at what it actually would have meant for them. So let's, let's backtrack to some of the things that Jimmy was um, talking about. So the first message was Jesus came in the right timing. Well, here's the thing. If you have, um, you have the ability to set a time in history and a set a place in history, and everyone can understand that. I can pull out a map and find something. I can pull out a timeline and set. And so God can give actual reference points to that. But when God is dealing, when he's, when he's um, putting prophecy into the scripture for them to try to figure out over time, how do you define something that has no definition? So Joseph comes on the scene, Mary comes on the scene, and it's clear that they are not expecting it because I'm sure that when, um, when the angel comes to Mary and says, hey, you're favored from God, you're going to give birth to the Messiah, She's probably excited. And then she says, but how's it going to happen? I, I'm not married. I don't know. I don't sleep with a man. 
So in my mind, that says Mary's expectation of the Messiah's coming is going to be like it has always been. A husband and wife will have a child. And when Joseph, who's, according to the scripture, a righteous man, is engaged to be married to this um, fine young lady, and I believe um, expecting, expecting his life to be pretty regular. Here's Joseph, the son of Jacob. He's going to marry this lovely girl, and they're going to have a family, and he's going to teach the boys how to do carpentry, and then someday he'll get old and die, and he'll have passed the faith on to another generation, just like his father did and his grandfather did and his great-grandfather did back through all of these generations. And before he can even get started on, the, before he can even get started on what he thought was his life, his world is torn apart. The girl that he thought was pure, the girl that he thought was righteous, has come down pregnant. And, and what is the natural inclination? It's not, oh, maybe she's going to have the Messiah. No, that's not what he's thinking. Because they're not thinking that thought. And he decides he's a righteous man. He's gonna, he doesn't want to hurt her unduly, though she has hurt him pretty dramatically by this. And so he decides to divorce her. Now, in their world, when, you are, uh, when you're engaged to be married, you are betrothed to be married, and that betrothal is a down payment. In other words, you become, in their world, married, but you don't have the rights and privileges of marriage yet. So once that happens, the, the, the young man, he's going to go build his house. He's going to make his house ready. He's going to have everything ready so that when it's, when it's time for him to go get his wife... Everything's in place, and she's taking that time to prepare for marriage, and they are not allowed to go out and date other people in the meantime. This is, this is not a free time yet. It's not one final bachelor party before it's all over. It's, this is it. You're now married. You have a year to get it all together. And in that time frame, Mary winds up pregnant. And he's naturally thinking what any man in any generation in history would naturally think. I chose wrong. She wasn't what I thought she was. But he does love her at the same time. And he does care about her, and he doesn't want to make things worse for her. So he decides not to make a big deal out of it and just quietly divorce her. He lays down to sleep one night. If I was Joseph, I think I would not go to sleep anymore by the time this story is over. Because every time he lays down to sleep, it seems like he's got an angel visiting. An angel comes to him and says, don't be afraid to marry this young lady because what's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, in, in the passage, um, in this particular translation, it almost, it looks like there's the angelic vision and that he agrees to it. And then he inserts this thing from Isaiah seven fourteen, because this is what the prophets foretold, a virgin shall conceive. I don't know. I'm, the King James renders it a little more like the angel would have been saying it to him. I don't know which way it is, but I'm going to conjecture. Again, I can't prove some of the things I'm saying, but I want to just pre present it as a possibility, right? I'm going to conjecture that the angel actually tells him in the vision this verse from Isaiah. Because this verse was not considered by the Jewish people to be a messianic foretelling. Um, it was given to King Ahaz. Um, it's in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah goes to King Ahaz. Ahaz is concerned because the Assyrians are getting close and he's wanting to make some deals with other nations. And Isaiah goes to him and he says, this is what the word of the Lord says. Don't do those things and ask me for a sign so I can prove to you that I'll be faithful to you, Ahaz. And Ahaz says, oh, I, I shouldn't probably ask God for a sign. And God gets angry. He's like, really? I'm going to give you a sign then. This is the sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. And he goes on to list other things. 
Shortly thereafter, Isaiah goes into the prophetess, it says, and she has a baby. And so it seems like when you're reading the passage, the foretelling of the virgin conceiving is in that, is in that scenario, and, it's, and it happens. And the timeline happens, and Ahaz realizes he's made a mistake, and, and life goes on. Until we get to the New Testament, and it's suddenly inserted into this world. So the virgin birth is unexpected. Joseph's not expecting it. Mary's not expecting it. The Jewish community is not. They're expecting the Messiah. They know the time is right. Something's going to have to happen, but they're not expecting this. They know where he's going to be born, but they're not expecting this. Modern, uh, modern Jewish, uh, the modern Hebrew language, the word that Isaiah uses here is the word Alma. It's the Hebrew word Alma, and it means, it actually means in today's world, uh, in modern Hebrew, it can mean virgin, or it can just mean young woman. It can, it can, it doesn't. It's not tied specifically to the word virgin. Now, if that's true, that doesn't that doesn't mean like if Isaiah used a word that could be used interchangeably, it doesn't mean necessarily that he's not that the angel has it wrong and that this is not referring to the virgin birth. But it allows liberal theologians and people who don't want to stick to the word of God, it, it allows them a loophole to give uh, an out for what is a hard doctrine to imagine, right? But here's the deal. The Septuagint, which was a Greek translation from the Hebrew Bible that was made in the third century BC by Jewish scholars, translates this word, Alma, the Hebrew word, into the Greek word that means specifically virgin. So three centuries before Christ comes on the scene, there's no understanding of it, even up until the day of Christ. There's no understanding of the Messianic um, child coming through a virgin birth, they're still, they deliberately translate that word, specifically virgin. So I think there's a strong case for us to say that is exactly what it meant. And that's what the angel tells Joseph. And Joseph takes it to mean that. And he takes it to mean it very literally because he immediately goes and he marries this woman who he was planning on divorcing. So the virgin birth was unexpected. Point two, the virgin birth was unprecedented. And this is the part where I get excited because this is the part where it all, like it, it becomes, oh, praise the name of the Lord. This is where, this is where it goes way past what we can imagine. So let's look at it a little bit. I want to go back to the creation of the world. I want to go back to the beginning chapters of this book that we call the Bible. Go back to the book of Genesis. And when God creates the world, He creates it from nothing. There is the Trinity. There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they exist eternally, and they need nothing else. They are self-sufficient. They don't need us. They don't need a universe. I don't understand it, but they exist within their own glory and within their own love. And at some point in eternity past, and I'm going to wave my arms around because we live in a timeline. So, so for me, there's eternity past, and there's eternity future, and then there's the present. But the fact is, is eternity for God is not the same. He's not on a timeline. And so I don't know. He doesn't wave his hand back and say, well, way back then. But for us, way back then, before the universe began, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created a plan and they created a plan for us right here today. They created something that would come into existence from nothing. And the universe, that's so massive, was nothing. And then God said, let there be. And just like that, just like that, there was what we know. Now let's blow our minds a little bit. So 
In the known universe, scientists estimate that there are somewhere around 100 billion galaxies. And within each galaxy, there's an estimated 100 billion stars. That means in our Milky Way galaxy, there's approximately 100 billion stars. We've gotten so used to billions being thrown around with national debt and everything that they, they say, oh, it's just going to be another 500 billion. Oh, okay, I, that shouldn't be a problem. Um, that we've, we've kind of gotten numb to the words. So let's give us, we're going we're gonna to just have a, a word picture, all right? So if you were to start counting today um, at one number per second, you could count to a million in roughly 12 days. So counting 24 hours a day for, for 12 days, you could count from zero to a million. And that takes a while. Here's where it gets amazing. But when you go to billion, if you started counting today, it would take you 31.7 years to get to billion. 12 days to get to a million, 31.7 years to get to a billion. That means that when Adam was created, had he started numbering the stars at that point, at one per second, and he had been able to see the entire universe, he would have had to count through, the, through all of creation, through all the pre-flood, through the flood, through Abraham, through David, all the way up until Israel gets captured by the Assyrians in 700 B.C. At one per second, just to get to the stars in our galaxy. Now we have another hundred billion to go, estimated. And God said, let there be. And like that, it was there. And Jimmy was asking a couple weeks ago, he said, do you think that God will, will he create the, the universe whole cloth or will he like kind of fix the earth? And I said, Jimmy, I don't think that's a valid question. He spoke all of that into existence. I don't think it's an issue for him to just speak it into existence again. It's really not a big deal. In Genesis, it says he made the stars also. But in that creation, he went from nothing to something. And I think personally that the, that the, the virgin birth is a miracle on par with that. Let me explain what I mean. When God made Adam, he made him out of the dust of the earth. Everything else he spoke into existence. And then he kneels down in the dirt and he forms a man. And he breathes into his nostrils a breath of life. And this is, what I, this is what I think. Because as he gets ready to do that, he says, let us make man in our image. And Keith had talked about this a couple weeks. What does that mean to be made in God's image? I think it means a lot of things. But I've been pondering something this week. Do you suppose, do you suppose that as God is kneeling there in the dirt, making Adam How should we do this? What do you think, son? You know why there's a discussion on it? I'm just conjecturing. Because in the not-too-distant future, his son will bear that image. So when God makes man in his own image, it is because someday he will fill that image. And I think, I think that the DNA of God, I can't prove this, but I think it's an amazing thought that God takes his own DNA and puts it into Adam. And he gets started because, because the scripture says that Adam, as it goes back to the genealogies, and it gets to Adam, and it says, Adam, the son of God. And down through the centuries, husband after father after father after father has a child, has a son, and that son has a son. And it goes on and on and on and on until it gets to Jesus. And then something changes. <clears throat> For the first time in creation, for the first time in, in the universe as we know it, the Creator 
of something becomes his own creation. Now, I want you to imagine this with me for a little bit. My son, Jonathan uh, Butch, gave him a 1979 Honda moped. And the only thing Jonathan can't, doesn't like about it is he can't make it go faster. But it runs, and he loves fooling with that thing and tinkering with it, and he's good at it. And I said to Jonathan, as we were talking about this, I said, imagine the impossibility of you becoming the creation, the thing that you're working on. It's inconceivable. Shakespeare, um, I think it's conceivable that when Shakespeare was writing his plays that he wrote some of the characters as people that he knew, maybe even as his own personality. I know for a fact that Norman Rockwell painted in some of his paintings, painted his own, his own portrait into it. But that's not Norman Rockwell in the picture. That is a two-dimensional image that when we look at it, we say that, that's what Norman Rockwell looked like. And if you're reading Shakespeare, if you're in a Shakespearean play, you might suspect that this is what Shakespeare felt, but that's not Shakespeare in the play. We can't get into our own creation, but God set it up from the beginning he set up this image that he creates of himself in the dirt with the capability for him 4,000 years later to merge with it and to become one of it. Do you understand? Like, this is on par with from nothing to everything because this has never been done before and it's never been done since and I don't think it'll ever be done again. You can't do this unless you're an infinite God. This is something for me that for the last probably six or seven years has been, has just been getting into my head and, and has, has caused me to cry, to be honest with you. Because, because when I was growing up, it was a great story. When I was growing up, it was something that was worth reading. But the more I pondered it and the more I thought about the impossibility of it, because it's real easy. My, my youngest son dresses up right now. And I come in at one moment, and he's a pirate. And I come in half an hour later, and he's a cowboy. And I come in a little while later, and he's a soldier. And when he puts those clothes on, that's what he is in his own mind. But you know what? He's still my four-year-old son underneath the clothes. And that's what some people have tried to, tried to do with Jesus. They've tried to make him be God, come down, and put on the clothes of a human. And then after the, after the death and resurrection of Christ, he goes back to heaven, and he... Well, we got that done and taken care of. Now let's move on. No, that is not what happens. He becomes flesh, the DNA of God. I don't, I can't, I can no more explain this than anything, but I would, I, I have thought about this this week. Again, conjecture, hear me. This is not, this is Micah thinking, okay? A way to imagine it. Imagine the throne room, the day of conception. Let's just, let's just imagine for a moment. The Father and the Son are sitting there and the Holy Spirit's there. Maybe the Father is going through, because by the way, the DNA of Christ comes from his Father. Just like all of my sons, the DNA for them come from me and my wife. So the Father, maybe they're going through the catalog of what DNA shall we put into it? We've got, we've got to add 23 chromosomes to this package. One of them is going to be a Y. And, he, and they build this package. And, and this, this thing that is going to, that is going to be the replacement for the human sperm that would normally um, fertilize the egg. This is, this, it's compatible. It is compatible with an egg inside of a little peasant girl in a little nobody town of Nazareth. Think about that. And so the father and the son are sitting there and he hands it off to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's going to be the one that goes and overshadows Mary. And when he leaves, I can, 
as I as imagine, I look at the, I imagine the father and son looking at each other, right? Because something is about to happen that's never happened before. The Trinity, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, are going to be separated for a while. And the angels, maybe they're standing around wondering, what is going on? There's some solemn mood in the throne room today. And as the Holy Spirit gets to Mary, and that egg is fertilized, listen to me. Suddenly, suddenly, the Son is not in the throne room anymore. You understand me? Suddenly, for the first time in history, there's only two representing the Trinity there. And the Son, where did He go? And I can imagine the angels, it's like, what happened? Maybe the light dimmed in heaven for a moment. What happened? And I can imagine the Father saying, come here. See, see that little lady down there in Nazareth? Look closely. Because inside of her, Jesus is being created. And right now, the creator of the universe, the creator of a hundred billion galaxies with a hundred billion stars and trees that produce leaves every year with chlorophyll that take light from the sun and, and CO2 from the air and create sugar for the plant and oxygen for us to breathe. That person is one cell right now. And the Bible says that in Him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I want to tell you something. Somehow, the infinite God who created this was one cell for a moment in time. Ugh, that, is, that is beyond comprehension. I couldn't, make, I couldn't make heads or tails out of this, except that I know that it's true because it's the only way that it can be done. And God has become flesh. The image that He created in the garden has now been actually impacted with his DNA in a way that has never happened before. And the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is on his way. Now, again, imagine with me. Imagine the angels thinking, wow, has God gone crazy? What are they planning? And for nine months, now God is on a timeline. For the first time, an eternal God is tied to time. Jesus will require nine months of gestation to be born. And the Father has to wait. And the Holy Spirit has to wait, and the angels have to wait. So I think it is no wonder when Jesus is born in that little stable in Bethlehem, I think it is no wonder that the heavens split open and there's a whole bunch of angels because they see the sun again for the first time in nine months. He doesn't look like what they remembered, but somehow or another they know that that's God down there, that little baby in that manger. And it blows even their minds. The virgin birth was unprecedented. There's nothing like it in the world. There's nothing like it again ever. God has become one of us. Now we're going to go into chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Israel, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel, who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. By the way, I want to interject here. When you read this passage, you will hear Joseph say, the child and his mother. He never says, my son. He says, the child and his mother. Makes it very clear. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up! Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel because those who sought the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. And then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he will be called a Nazarene. The virgin birth was unexpected by everyone, Joseph, Mary, their family, the, the community at large. The virgin birth was unprecedented. And in, in, to me, the most, the most astonishing thing about this whole story is the unprecedented nature, the ability for God to do what's absolutely shatteringly impossible. But, but the third point is the virgin birth was unequivocal. Now, that word, honestly, that word came to my mind as I'm, as I'm preparing for this message, and I wasn't even quite sure what it meant. I was like, better go look this up before I like put it in a title somewhere. So I looked it up, and it's exactly what I needed. To equivocate is to is to like Elijah said to the Israelites on Mount Carmel. How long are you going to are you going to waver between these two decisions? If Baal is God, serve him. If the Almighty is God, serve him. But stop. Stop riding the fence back and forth. To equivocate is to, to not make a decision, to, to go to here or maybe to there or maybe to there. To be unequivocal is there has to be a decision made. You do not have the choice to ride the fence anymore. And if you look in this story, the main players are unequivocal, good or bad. The wise men, I don't know who the wise men are, but I have some ideas. Um... Monk, there was not 14 of them. We actually know their names. There was three of them. Don't you realize that? <laughs> Melchior, Caspar, Balthazar. We know that. Wait, that's not biblical. I, it's, it's interesting. I like to think of three because that's what we've always thought of, right? But these wise men, these magi came from somewhere, and they came from a long ways away. This was not a uh, day ride for them. I personally think they came from Babylon. My opinion is that when Daniel was in uh, Babylon under the kings, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, and then later on through the other kings of the, of the Babylonian Empire, and then on into the Persian Empire, and he was the chief of the wise men there. 
some of the Jews stayed behind when the, when the, the rest of them went back to Jerusalem. I kind of think personally that this is some of those, if you want to call them uh, away Jews, the ones who didn't come back but still held hope forward, right? And maybe they had been somewhat paganized or somewhat um, mixed in, but they were looking for something, and they, were, and they saw it in the stars. Whatever there was that they saw, they saw it, and they knew categorically that this, this thing that had happened was more important than other kings. Herod was king of Judea at the time. They weren't coming to worship him. And when they show up, they show up and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? I had missed that until this time as I'm studying it. You know what they were saying? He has the right to sit on the throne. You know what? Herod didn't have the right to be the king. He was not from the line of David. He was only partially a Jew, and he knew it. And I bet there was a lot of folks in Judea who really didn't want Herod on the throne. And so when they come in, they say, where is he that's born king of the Jews? Herod realizes that he has an antagonist and he's going to come out against him. So the wise men make a decision when they see the star. And I don't know what that means. I've heard different interpretations of what the star was, etc. I don't know that it's provable one way or another, but I know this. When they saw it, they knew that it, was stood, it stood for something very important that was going on in Israel at that time. And they knew what it was. They knew that the king had come. And they were going to do something about it. So they gather their stuff. I don't know how long it's going to take them, but if they go from Babylon, it's a couple hundred miles across desert. And they get there. And not only did they bring the stuff for the journey, they bring something else. They bring expensive gifts for him. And when they get to Jerusalem, and Herod can't help them, and the wise men say, I mean, the, uh, the uh, Jewish scholars say, oh, we know he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They head for Bethlehem. They see the star. And when they get there, They've already given up their time. I don't know how long it would take them to give it. They've already given up their time for the decision that they've made. They've already given up resources for the decision that they've made. They've been away from their families, I'm sure, for the decision that they're making to go see him. Now they're going to give up one thing less. They're going to give up their dignity. Because they're going to get on their knees and worship a baby. I want to tell you something. It's hard enough. I think you would agree with me. It's hard enough in this church right now, if somebody says, could we all kneel and pray? And we're like, really? Can we just sit here and pray? It's hard enough to give up our dignity long enough to, or give up our comfort long enough to kneel for a little bit and pray. These men come and they get on their knees before a baby because they know he's the king. Now, I don't understand that. I don't know how they knew so categorically. But I know one thing. For them, the decision, the virgin birth was unequivocal in the decision to do the right thing. For Joseph, man, if you go back and look at that passage, and and we read it, and this is what we hear. We hear, oh, Joseph heard from the angel, and oh, great idea. I'm going to go marry this person. She's going to have the Messiah. Wonderful. Maybe he thought that for an instant. And then when he got up the next morning, And he started thinking about that decision. Listen, let me me ask you a question. You're engaged to be married to someone. Young man, you're engaged to be married. And the woman that you're engaged to be married to becomes pregnant. What is the assumption that everyone's going to make? Pretty clear, right? You're the dad. The only thing you can do in that world to save your name is to walk away from her. Because in that culture, if that was your son, if that was your baby and that girl, you had to marry her. The only way to prove that it wasn't yours was to walk away from it. 
And Joseph was doing that. He knew that child was not his. When he goes back and he agrees to marry this woman who is pregnant, he is giving up the right to defend his honor. He is giving up his dignity for the sake of something greater. And when Mary takes on and she says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, when the angel comes to her and says, Are you willing to be this? Are you willing to allow the Holy Spirit to come down and put, and put something in you that you did not have a man involved with? And she says, be it unto me as you will. But I can't help but think that the next morning when she gets up, she thinks, oh, Lord, what have I done? What are people going to think about me? And she loses her dignity. And I dare say, I can't prove this, but I dare say that Joseph and Mary in the town of Nazareth never regained that dignity. How do you prove? You married the girl. Guy looks like his mama. How do you ever regain that? Matter of fact, we know from the scriptures, they say, isn't that the son of Joseph and Mary over there? And he's up there telling us what to do in a synagogue. They don't believe the story. And so they live under the cloud of shame because they have chosen what is right. They had, they, there was no, you can't ride the fence in that scenario. You either choose yes, obedience to God, or no, I will not do it. There is no, the, the virgin birth creates an unequivocal decision-making process for every person involved in this story, including Herod. Herod says, hey, go find him, and then I'm going to worship him. No, you're not going to worship him. You're going to try to kill him. And everybody that reads this story knows that, right? But he didn't have to. Nobody forced him to try to kill Jesus. It was his own self falling on the wrong side of the decision. He couldn't ride the fence any more than anyone else can. And I'll tell you this, in today's world, we can forget that. You know why we can forget that? Because we look around and we see wicked people getting away with wickedness, and we see wicked people prospering, and we think, that's not fair. They get to ride the fence. Here's the reality. The virgin birth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ through the virgin birth, has created in time an unequivocal decision for every single person that has ever lived. Some make the decision here, and some will make the decision when their back is against the wall, and they're in front of the judge, and there will be no backing out. That decision has been made, and it's final, and the judge will rule on it, and they will get the wrong side of the decision, just like Herod did. There is no backing out. This decision is unequivocal for everyone. Point four, the virgin birth was unassuming. And I, I struggled with this, honestly, when I, was, when I was preparing it because we have unprecedented, we have unequivocal, and then we have unassuming. But you know what? That is exactly what happens. Because Joseph and Mary have this, in spite of all, of the, in spite of all the difficulties, in spite of all the what's in their head, you know, the, the shame and what's going to... They both know that what's going on. So they can encourage each other as they're, they're going to Bethlehem and as they're, as they're struggling through even criticisms that are railed against them. They have each other for support, right? And then it comes to pass, and, there, and there's the baby. And Joseph's like, that's not my son. That's your son. This is real. It's not a joke. I'm, I'm looking at Messiah. And then shepherds come wandering in, and they're stinky and smelly, and they're like, oh my goodness, angels just told us he was going to be here. You think that made him feel good? And then wise men come wandering in a little while later, and they give him amazing stuff. And then he gets another phone call from an angel and says, get out now tonight, because Herod's trying to kill him. And they make a run for Egypt. And they get to Egypt, 
I bet you Joseph isn't telling anybody who they are. Let's just lay low, Mary. We don't need anybody knowing that our son is special. And then when they come back, they come back to Judea and they're going to settle. Maybe he's planning on going back to Bethlehem because that's where he's from, right? Another angel comes and says, don't do it. Keep going north. Get up into Galilee, away from Herod's oversight. And they settle in a little town called Nazareth. Nazareth is so unassuming that later on when Jesus is starting his ministry and he is meeting and trying to collect his apostles, his disciples, he says to Philip, he meets Philip and Philip says to Nathaniel, hey, come meet this guy. And Nathaniel says, he's from Nazareth. Don't you know nothing good comes out of Nazareth? It is unassuming from the, from the time that all of this excitement at the beginning around the birth and all of the, all of the excitement wears away and they wind up back in Nazareth, back in hometown where everybody knows that Jesus is an illegitimate child, back to the plain old grind. You know what Mary has to do? Mary has to make food. Mary has to keep her house clean. You know that Mary has to change Jesus' diapers, and she can't even throw them away like y'all do today. She has to go and wash them and get them ready for the next use. And then she has to help Jesus as he learns how to walk. And she has to rub his gums when he's crying at night because his teeth hurt because they're coming in. And the regular, plain old stuff of life that just goes on. And nobody knows for 30 years, here's this, with the exception of that, we, we see that little glimpse at 12 years old when he's in the temple. And it scares them half to death. They're probably like, what are you doing? Keep it undercover. They live regular lives. Nothing important. You know what? Very much like our lives. Mary's life is filled with changing diapers and teaching someone how to read and rubbing sore gums and picking up a little kid who falls down and skins his knee and has, to, has the boo-boo kissed. Those are the things that Mary's life is filled with. You know what Joseph's life is filled with? I think he's filled with worry, honestly. If I was in charge of keeping the Son of God alive, and the king has already tried to kill him, I've had to run to another country to save his life, and when I come back, an angel has to come to me and say, don't stop here, keep moving. I'd be scared every time a stranger comes into town. What's he doing? Does, does he know about... Don't talk, Jesus. Mary, what, what should we do? Joseph kind of disappears off the scene. I think I know why. I think he died of a heart attack at 50 years old. <laughs> He is a very conscientious man from the scriptures, it seems like, and he takes his job seriously. But Joseph's life is filled with something. Joseph goes to the carpenter shop, or he goes out and builds houses. You know why he's doing it? He's doing it so that he can make money, so that he can buy food, so that he can keep his family alive. And by Friday night, he's tired, and he's dirty, and he doesn't even have a hot shower to get into like we do. The, the reality of the virgin birth the reality of the incarnation for, for the parents of Jesus on earth was a plain old regular life in which nothing really changed, but their life got harder. And you know what the reality of the incarnation in my life is and in your life? Plain old regular life in which we're called to make decisions and choose to do the things that make our lives harder oftentimes. Now, let me hasten to say that joy comes with it. Let me hasten to say that there's coming a day when it's going to be rewarded beyond all telling. Beyond, as the scripture says, what we can ask or think. Beyond what we can imagine, it's going to be rewarded back to us. But right here, right now, just like Jesus, 
just like Mary, just like Joseph, our lives are very unassuming. Even the wise men, they come in, they make this splashy scene, they make an interesting exit, and we don't even know who they are. They disappear from history. And they go back. And do you think they wonder, maybe 20 years later, they're like, Balthazar, I wonder whatever happened to that, that little boy that we worshipped. And maybe, maybe they stuck around. Maybe they were around when he comes to, comes to his ministry. And they're like, oh, I knew it. I knew there was something special about that young boy. I don't know. But I know one thing. When I start thinking about the real ramifications of life, and what the virgin birth did, what the incarnation of Christ did for us as people and for them as people, it's messy and it's unassuming and it's wonderful. And we are so easy. I know I am. I get caught up in the ability to forget what's really important. And what's really important is that even Jesus, when he was on earth, went to the carpenter shop and made a chair for somebody because they needed a chair for their house. And he had to pay the bills just like his father had done before him. I don't understand it. I don't know why God set it up this way. But I know one thing. It's a good life that we live. So as we close this down, the virgin birth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ through the virgin birth, becoming God with us, becoming human like us, is eternally consequential. And this goes back to the unprecedented nature of it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in eternity past, outside of eternity, outside of time and space, when they create the universe, still interacting, but outside of it, not tied to it, in no way needing it, or like they don't need us. They are self-existent, and yet they want us to follow them. When Christ comes in and he becomes part of the human nature, the Trinity, the Godhead, has in that moment been tied to time and been tied to humanity in a way that we can't comprehend and it doesn't disappear. It continues on. Christ, when he comes back out of the grave, what does he come back as? Does he come back as a spirit? No, he tells his disciples, feel me. I'm not a spirit. Put your hand in my side. Give me a piece of fish. Let me show you. I can eat it. I am still God incarnate. I am still the son of God in the flesh and I will be this for you when I come back. You will be like me, and I will be the only begotten Son of God. I will be the first fruits among many brothers, the Scripture says, and you will be like me, and we will be sons of our Father in heaven. That is an incredible, an incredible thing. So I don't have, I don't have applications for you because this is not about us this morning. This is about Him. And my application, if there's an application, is this is the week of Christmas, and it's real easy for us to forget what Christmas is about. We know it, but we forget. So this week, when you get up in the morning, take some time, read those passages again, but do more than that. Think about a detail in it and imagine what it might have been like and let it soak into you. Think about what it looks like for Jesus now. Think about what it must be like for him to, be, to have known what it was like to be eternally sufficient and to now be the God-man for us. Jesus Christ in the flesh for us. That's what happened. That is worth celebrating. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.